Our New Testament lesson is from the book of James, verses 19 through 25. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, One Ancient Hope. It's, it's good to, to be with you. Like Michael had said, it's, it's been a tough 15 months for, for everyone. And that makes us appreciate even more this privilege of, of coming together in, in person. And it, it makes us look longingly forward to those times where we'll be able to gather again as the people of God here in one place. And towards that end, um, you know, if, if I have not had a chance to, to meet you yet, um, I'll be here after the service. Please, please do come and introduce yourself. And if you're new, I'm new too. And, and there's a good chance that I'm much newer than, than you are. So we can, we can connect on that. And of course, it's, it's God himself that brings us together here as a church. So before we start, let's come before him in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word we thank you, Lord, that your word both creates and crafts the church, creates and crafts the people of God. And we thank you, Lord, that you bring us together into community, into fellowship. And we pray, Father, that the words that follow will be faithful to your intent to Scripture, and that you, in your spirit, because of the work of your Son, will apply them to our head, to our hearts, to our hands, that we would be hearers of the word, but also that we would be doers of the word. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are socialized into life by acquiring a language or languages. From, from day one, we're being, being inducted into languages and all of the meanings and the practices therein. The philosopher of language, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, once said, to imagine a language means to imagine a form of life. That when we think of a, of a language, it's, it's naturally interwoven with, with, with a life, with our meanings, with all the things that we do. And that means that we start the world, start the, we start the world primarily as hearers. 
It's the basic disposition of the human from our very beginnings to here. And this goes both for audible languages and sign languages. So when I say here, I mean all of the different ways that we receive the words of another. For as we acquire a language, we are opened up to a rich world of linguistic meaning. However, at a certain age, we, we start to lose this disposition. We don't hear and listen quite so easily. All you have to do is look at the public sphere, the public square, and you'll hear many, many voices simply speaking past one another. And the louder the voices speak, the less the ears tend to listen. And it's a difficult thing to listen, because if we truly listen, if we truly hear, oftentimes we'll hear things that we would rather not hear. Listening can be an uncomfortable and a painful process because listening and the words that we hear might cut against our understandings of ourselves and the ways that we view the world. But this kind of listening, this kind of hearing is exactly what James calls us to in this passage. And this makes sense because if the church community is going to be a community that, that flourishes, then we really need to listen and to hear one another. But James goes even further. He, he calls us back to a deeper listening still, one that actually serves to undergird, undergird all of our listening and hearing of one another. He brings us back to the word of God. And this word is both difficult and delightful to hear. That is, the, the word of God takes us both lower and higher than any human world word. It discloses a world with depths and with heights that reach far above and far below the daily concerns that we're prone to inhabit. It's the hardest word to hear, but received with humility, it's also the most hopeful word that we can hear. And towards that end, draw, James draws our attention to two important words that God speaks to us. The first is the perfect law of liberty, and the second is the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And let's look at each in turn. We're going to start with the perfect law of liberty, and this is going to help us orient ourselves to the entire passage. And granted, it appears in the middle of the passage that we were looking at today, but it actually undergirds everything that James has to say. It's going to serve as the, as the backdrop of what he's telling his audience. And therefore, it's very important that we get this right, that we understand what does James mean by the perfect law of liberty. Well, to begin with, we've seen this word perfect before. In James 1, 4, he tells us his intention for his audience, that they would be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And in our first sermon in the series, we, we talked about that word for, for perfect, teleos, and it's the, the adjective form of the noun telos. And of course, telos is a word that we've taken directly from, from Greek. We can speak of a thing's telos, we can speak of a thing's end, its ultimate purpose, its consummation. And so when James here speaks of perfection, like before, he speaks of us becoming everything that God intends us to be of the human coming to full maturation, full fruition, full flourishing. 
Again, we've been going over and over again Psalm 1. We are to be like the tree that reaches the maturation that's planted along the streams of water and bears fruit in due season. And so when we look into the perfect law, it makes sense that we see a life of flourishing, a life of wisdom, a life of living rightly before God with others in the created order. But James also describes it as a law of liberty. And here it's, it's very important to understand what James is and is not saying. He's not putting forward a modern idea of, of freedom. When we tend to think of freedom, we think of a lack of coercion, the lack of someone else imposing their will upon us and making us do what we want, don't want to do. That's very important, and that's a necessary human right. But that particular understanding is not what James is getting at here. So we really have to understand what is he saying. He is not primarily speaking of a freedom from. This isn't a freedom from some bad thing, like a freedom from coercion. This is a positive view. This is a freedom for something. And in particular, the, the Greek word that James uses here, eleutheria, has a rich meaning in its contemporary context. Um, as one philosopher, uh, D.C. Schindler, says of this word, um, as it was understood in the ancient world, quote, it represents the full flourishing of a nature. If we think of Psalm 1 again, it's the freedom for the tree to produce and to bear fruit. It's interesting, Schindler even goes on to say that this notion communicates, quote, the notion of perfection or completion. Interestingly, Schindler doesn't interact with James at all, but recall that again in James 1, 4, James tells us that we should be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that this kind of freedom is what James has in mind. It's a freedom that is a kind of perfection, the freedom to reach a kind of maturation. Not a freedom from some bad thing, but a freedom for, the freedom to become what God intends the human being to become. So then, what is this perfect law of freedom? Well, it's the Old Testament law, the law that the psalmist delights in in Psalm 1, the law that's summarized in the Ten Commandments that teaches us how to fully love God to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. But if this law is a means of our freedom and perfection, why would James warn us against anger? Why would we have an anger that keeps us from listening to it? Why would we have an anger that stops this perfect law of liberty from producing the righteousness of God within us? Well, there's, there's two important reasons why this law can be hard to hear, why it makes us angry and makes us want to plug our ears. The first is it makes a claim upon us, and in so doing, it naturally puts a limit on our lives. And in our modern culture, we are very uncomfortable with limits. But ironically, if we look around, limits are everywhere. And they actually enable to do much, if not all, of the things that we do. Um, I've often been struck by an image that's put forward by a philosopher, uh, Immanuel Kant. And he talks about a bird, a dove. And he says, a dove, quote, 
cutting through the air in free flight and feeling its resistance, could come to form the idea that it would fly even better in airless space. So what he's saying is, imagine a bird and it's flying and it feels that air resistance and the bird thinks to itself, if it wasn't for that air resistance, I could actually fly much better. But the irony is that it, the air resistance is the very thing that helps the bird get off the ground. The bird thinks the air, is air, sorry, the air resistance is a constraint, but actually the air resistance is the very condition of its flight. And we find ourselves in many similar kinds of situations. Think about language again. When we operate within the limits of grammar, we are free to communicate. When we operate within the limits of music theory, we are free to compose the most complex and beautiful musical scores. Even more, the deeper we dig into linguistics and musicology, the more free we are to communicate, the more free we are to compose. In a similar way, when we live according to this perfect law of liberty, we are freed to live a life of flourishing. This law is like the grammar, the structure of the good life that God calls us to. But there's more. There's an even more cutting reason still why this particular law is so hard to, it's hard to hear. If we read the law, and especially Christ's infallible interpretation of the law and the Sermon on the Mount, we come to see just how far we've fallen from God's good intentions for the human life, for the life a flourishing. For instance, so stringent is God's call to us to love our neighbor that if we even disparage another person as a fool, Christ says that we are guilty of a kind of murder. Think about that. That is a dizzying standard for community flourishing. And because it's so high and so dizzying, it's also terrifying. Because if that's the standard, we realize how far we have fallen short. If every word and thought of disdain, of disparagement, of dismissing someone else is a kind of murder, then we are guilty of murder many, many times over. And so to truly hear this word, we have to acknowledge that we ourselves have rebelled against God and his good intentions for us. That we have not loved God and neighbor as we should. To admit this is to recognize first that there's such a thing as, as sin. That God has given us a perfect law of flourishing and we have rebelled against it. And it's also to acknowledge that we ourselves are sinners. Again, that we, we ourselves, have rebelled against it. And to be sure, this is a message that makes us angry. It's a message that we are loath to listen to. But you might step back and you say, that is simply laughable. That is an absolutely ridiculous standard. So you're telling me that if I have any disparaging, disdaining, dismissive thoughts towards another, 
or if I say something like that, either about or to another, I'm guilty of murder, that is absolutely ridiculous. No one lives like that. The philosopher Charles Taylor is, is helpful here, and um, he makes a really interesting observation in his book, A Secular Age, which outlines our present situation, or depending on your proclivities, our, our present predicament. But he says, an interesting thing happens when a society rejects the notion of sin, and he points out that our modern society largely has. In particular, a rejection of sin has two interesting, unexpected effects. Taylor says the following, quote, If we see our impetuses, incapacities, and divisions as the fruit of sin, of evil, of moral inadequacy, we will expect to find them in virtually every human being. What Taylor is saying is that if we reject sin, we no longer obviously understand ourselves as sinners. And if that's the case, we no longer look at ourselves as the source of problems in the world. When we look at the world and the bad things going on, we look for external sources. The reason why things are so bad are because, because of situations primarily outside of me. I myself am not implicated in any of this evil. This seems like a positive development, but Taylor points out that there's also a reverse side. If sin is not a problem, if not every human heart is actually corrupted with sin, then Taylor points out that the following will happen. Quote, we will expect a lot more people to attain to quote-unquote normalcy, somewhere in the middle range as far as moral perfection is concerned having got rid of their unease or learned to live with it. What Taylor is saying is that without sin as a source of evil, we naturally operate in a kind of mid-range of existence. He calls it a, quote, low altitude. Because when we look around, we think, well, we're not really all that bad. But when we look around at the possibilities of flourishing, well, they're not really all that good. Because if we reject sin, there is a sense in which we normalize, we accept the present state of things with all of the problems and all of the injustices therein. If we are not sinners, we don't need to be transformed. We just need to be tweaked, maybe, maybe a little bit here and there. Walker Percy, a modern novelist, captures this low altitude quite well. This is from his book, The, the Moviegoer. Uh, the main character, uh, named Binks, is told the following by one of his friends. Quote, My husband, Eddie, and I have re-examined our values and found them pretty darn enduring. To our utter amazement, we discovered that we both have the same life goal. Do you know what it is? To make a contribution however small, and leave the world just a little better off. However, as he goes back to think on these words, Binks comes to the following conclusion. Quote, I get to thinking about her and old Eddie re-examining their values, and then I can't help wondering to myself, why does she talk as if she was dead? Another 40 years to go, and dead, dead, 
dead. What Taylor and Percy are telling us is that leaving the world a little better off is not an adequate goal for human flourishing. It's much too low of an altitude. Can that goal help us meet the deepest desires of our souls? Can it console us amidst our deepest fears and despairs? Contrast that low altitude with the following quote from from Augustine, and this is during a time of self-examination and the confessions. He says, quote, There is a lamentable darkness in me in which my latent possibilities are hidden from myself. And what he's saying is when he looks inside of himself, he sees a deep evil. And even more, this evil is worse than he thinks. He acknowledges that there is such a thing as sin, and he is a sinner. And these are not the words of a serial killer. These are the words of perhaps the greatest theologian in Christian history. So Augustine takes us low. He takes us much, much lower than our modern malaise, much lower than our low altitude. He says that we, all of us, are implicated in the evil of the world and that each of our human faculties are corrupted by sin. But... Because he takes us so low, Augustine also takes us much higher. Because sin is not normal. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. Like Michael said in the prayer, children are not supposed to die. There is nothing normal about this. And because there is such a thing as sin, this present state is abnormal and we are meant for much more than simply leaving the world a little better off. Percy warns us that if this is our ultimate goal of flourishing, this is tantamount to death. That cannot sustain the deepest desires and yearnings of the human heart. But think about the perfect law of liberty. It tells us that every disparaging thought and word Every dismissive thought in word, every disdaining thought in word is tantamount to murder. God calls us to a very high altitude indeed. But the question is, how do we get there? Because James tells us that looking into the law, the perfect law of liberty, is like looking into a mirror in which we see who we really are. And if you think about this, this can have two different effects. One, we come to see how far we have fallen from God's perfection of flourishing. We see how guilty we are before this good and gracious God. But we can also see something else. We can see who and what God is committed to forming us into. The kind of community that God is committed to make the church into. So the key question there is how do we move from that first effect of condemnation and guilt to that second effect of promise of who and what God will make us? That is, if we look into the perfect law of liberty, how can we find anything other than condemnation? How can we actually learn to delight in this law as does the writer of Psalm 1? And that brings us to our second and final point. 
the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James calls it the implanted word. Again, he's using agricultural imagery, images of farming, of seeds, of, of planting. And, and that's important to point out because again and again, agricultural images are going to form the backdrop of James's letter. But what is this implanted word? Well, if, if we think of the notion of, of implanted, two things come to mind. The first is if something is implanted, it comes from outside of us. It comes from a source that's not ourself. But if it's implanted, it's also the case that in some ways it's natural to us. Our souls, our ourselves, are the natural soil in which it grows. So to say it's implanted is interesting because it tells us it's both alien to us, it comes from outside, but it's also natural to us. It naturally grows and develops our souls. But what does it mean for something to come from outside? Well, the first is that it's something that by our own efforts, by merely looking inside, we would have no inkling of this. And this is important because there's a sense in which the perfect law of liberty actually does come from inside. To be sure, without scripture, we would not know how stringent this law is. We wouldn't know what heights of morality, what kinds of ethical standards God calls us to. But at the same time, no one can escape ethics. We may, we may not believe that every disparaging, disdaining, dismissive word is murder, but in our hearts, we all know that murder is wrong. So when we think of the perfect law of liberty revealed in scripture, it's not in a sense telling us something new, but it's giving us a clarification, a kind of higher definition, a kind of higher resolution for the picture of ethics that's already there in our hearts. But the implanted word isn't like that. The implanted word comes from outside. Think of it like this. If, if we're trying to find out what's happening in the world, what's happened in a number of different countries over the globe, we can't look inside of ourselves and find out the answer. We have to go to a news site. We have to read actual reports of things that have actually happened. Well, the implanted word, too, is a form of, of news. Specifically, it's, it's gospel. It's good news. It's the good news of what God has done. Specifically, it's the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's a report of something that God has done that comes to us from the outside. But, and this is key, this word of the gospel, this implanted word, works with the perfect law of liberty. Because again, if we look at the law, we see how far we've fallen short. We see that we're guilty. So if we look at the law, how could it be anything other than a source of trepidation, of sorrow, of grief, even terror? And the answer is because of the implanted word. The implanted word is the good news that Christ himself has lived the perfect life of flourishing on our behalf, living perfectly before God with others in creation. Even more, it's the news that Christ himself has borne the punishment that we deserve for rejecting God and his good and gracious purposes in our lives, the punishment that we deserve for murdering our neighbor. And yes, murdering our neighbor in our hearts, but even literal acts of 
murder. The gospel reaches very low, and no sin, however grave, is too heavy for Christ to bear. Christ bears even the gravest sins on the cross. This is good news, but James warns us that we have to receive it by faith, that with meekness we need to receive the implanted word. With meekness, we need to acknowledge that we have fallen short, that there is such a thing as sin, and that we ourselves are sinners. And this is an angry word, one in which we are often unwilling to listen to. Yet, to relinquish this anger, to admit that this is true, is to receive the very righteousness of Christ. It is to no longer be condemned because Christ himself has carried out the demands of this perfect law. And so, as Christians, when we look into the law, we are convicted and pushed to repentance, but we are not condemned, for Christ himself has borne all of our condemnation. We're like children who are lovingly corrected by parents. For as a parent, when you correct a child, it's not that the obedience produced makes you love the child. That is not proper parenthood, but rather you correct the child because you love them. You know what's best for them. And you realize that obedience here will lead them into a life of flourishing. The obedience does not um, produce the love. The love produces the correction that leads to obedience. But there's more about this word because it also tells us that Christ was also raised. That he was raised to new life and ascends to the Father. And at the Father's right hand, he gives us the Spirit and enables to begin living the perfect law of liberty, to not just hear, but also learn to do the word. And because Christ works through us in the spirit, because we have listened, God can work in us to produce the very righteousness of God, that we are free to flourish. And so when a Christian looks into the perfect law of liberty, they're convicted and they're instructed, but they're no longer condemned. But again, the implanted word does not just come from the outside. It's also natural to us. Again, our lives, our natures are the proper soil in which it bears fruit. And, and James tells us that this implanted word is able to save our very souls. So this word is a means by which God brings about flourishing in our lives. The Christian tradition has long affirmed the truth that grace perfects nature. What that means is that God's work through Christ just is the means by which God brings us to the completion and to the perfection that he intends for the human life. And so when we receive the implanted word, we look into the law and we see heights and depths, goods and bads, sadnesses and joys, which make for a much richer world than the low altitude of much modern life. And so this is my third sermon as a pastor here at One Ancient Hope, and I realized that I would not be a PCA pastor worth my salt if I did not have at least one of the Lord of the Rings reference at, at this point. So um, just to waylay any concerns, I want to take care of that right now. Um, but but there's, a, there's a particular scene that is helpful here that will help us close. And it's the first time that Sam meets the elves. And he realizes that compared to them, he lives a kind of mid-range existence. 
Compared to the world of the elves, his life is here, but theirs is much higher and much lower. And after that encounter, his friend and fellow hobbit Frodo asks him the following question. Do you like elves still now that you have had a close view? And Sam replies with the following. They seem a bit above my likes and dislikes, so to speak. It don't seem to matter what I think about them. They're quite different from what I expected. So old and young, so joyful and so sad, as it were. And James asks us a similar question. Do you like the perfect law of liberty now that you have had a closer view? And if we look rightly into this law, our responses should be much the same as that of Sam. The perfect law of liberty is above my likes and my dislikes. It shows me that life is actually much sadder and more joyful than what I expected. There's a deep sadness there, a sadness for my own sin, the corruption of my own heart, all of the ways that I have rejected God and his good and gracious purposes for my life, and even worse, that this same corruption infects every human heart that I meet. But it also takes us higher than a low altitude because it tells us that Christ himself gave his life for us, that he was raised for us, and it points us to a new life where there will be no disparaging, dismissive, or disdaining word. They will not even come to our lips. They will not even come to our thoughts. Think about that kind of community. Think about that kind of joy and social cohesion. And so while we're taken very low, we're also taken very high. And so what Sam says of the elves really should be said of each and every Christian. They're quite different from what I expected. So old and young, so joyful and so sad, as it were. And because of that, the gospel should produce persons who are quick to listen, persons who are quick to hear, persons who are quick to receive both encouragement and correction, and the correction should not surprise us. The correction should not devastate us. Again, we've seen our own hearts. Augustine once utters the following prayer. He says to God, God, show me myself. Show me myself. And what an important prayer that is. And as we grow in the Christian life, we realize that one of the primary means by which God answers this prayer is through community, through others who see our highs and see our lows, who see our potentials and also see our pitfalls. But James also tells us that the gospel should produce persons who are slow to speak. He doesn't say never to speak, but simply slow to speak. And if we never speak hard things, then that might be indicative that we ourselves as a Christian community are flying at a low altitude, that we've looked around at the difficulties, at the problems in our relationships, and we've normalized those. That, well, this is just the way that human community is, forgetting that God has called us to a much richer and deeper community. 
But when we speak, especially in times of corruption or correction, we do need to search our own hearts. We need to make sure that the words that we're speaking are leading persons to life and that they're not disguised acts of murder, that they're not a word of disparagement, of dismissiveness, of disdain that is simply disguised as a word of life. We need to be searching our hearts that we would lead others into the path of flourishing. For God himself has given us his implanted word, the gospel, the very word of life. And because he has done so, let us follow suit and speak words of life, words of flourishing to those around us. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have given us the perfect law of liberty. And we thank you, Lord, that it is not a terror, but it is a promise of what you will make us. And it's a promise because of your gospel, because of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I pray we as a church would be a community that is led towards this flourishing. In your name we pray. Amen.